Tom Swift and the Visitor from Planet X by Victor Appleton II. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 Another Tremor Tom was appalled at this new danger. Shoving his drawing-board back into its wall-slot, the young inventor hurried to his desk and made a number of telephone calls. Within minutes, a group of five of his most trusted associates had assembled in Tom's office. First to arrive were Bud Barkley, Ames, and George Dilling, the Swift's communications chief. They were joined moments later by Hank Sterling, the square-jawed chief engineer and troubleshooter of Enterprises, and Arvid Hansen. Hansen, a hulking six-footer, made all the delicate-scale models of Tom Jr.'s and Tom Sr.'s inventions. He was not only an expert craftsman, but, like all the Swift's key men, a trained aircraft and space pilot as well. "'What's up, Skipper?' Bud asked. "'I guess you might call this a council of war,' Tom replied. He divulged his fears that Brungarian scientists might hijack the brain energy to be sent from Planet X, home of the Swift's unknown space friends. "'Bud, you recall Mother's remark last night about the danger that this energy may prove overwhelmingly powerful,' Tom went on. "'Well, just suppose that our Brungarian pals fit it out in robot form, then turn it loose against us, or our friends in other countries.' Bud gave an awed whistle. "'Boy, a thing like that might make even a powerful missile look like a toy!' "'Even if the brain energy proved too small to be harnessed for destructive purposes,' Tom went on, "'it might turn out to possess super-intelligence. Gifted with all the scientific know-how of the space people, it might be made to reveal those secrets to the Brungarians.' They might learn from it how to construct weapons or spacecraft powerful enough to conquer the free world, Tom ended. His listeners were grim-faced at the thought. I'd say that's a far worse danger than any chance of their coming up with a robot monster, Ames said. Ditto, Hansen agreed. I think so, too, Tom replied. In any case, it's up to us to make sure the Brungarians don't switch that energy off course before it lands here. Think their scientists are capable of such a stunt? George Dilling inquired. Tom shrugged. They're certainly far advanced in the fields of rocket guidance and telemetry, but actually we just don't know. Hank Sterling glanced hopefully at the young inventor. "'Got any ideas, Skipper?' he asked. Tom drummed a pencil on the table thoughtfully before replying. "'Maybe our best bet is first to find out all we can about the lines of research on which they're concentrating. That might be a tip-off.' After a thorough discussion, it was decided that Ames and Dilling would fly to Washington at once and talk to the FBI and Central Intelligence. Their job would be to garner and piece together every scrap of information on Brungarian scientists' accomplishments.
Let us know as soon as you get a general picture, Tom said. Ames and Dilling promised to do so, and the meeting broke up. Feeling somewhat reassured now that a definite plan of action had been decided upon, Tom resumed work on his sketches. Although both the problem and the solution were still hazy in his mind, a few ideas began to take shape. A radio antenna would certainly be needed to receive or transmit signals at a distance, and repelatron units would give the brain a way to exert force when it wanted to act. These were devices which Tom had invented to produce a repulsion force ray. He had used the principle in both air and spaceflight. A power plant might also be needed to generate additional energy in case the brain's own energy was very small. Lastly, there would have to be a control system for use either by the brain itself or by its human operators. After an hour of work at top speed, Tom was rather pleased with one rough sketch. He was mulling over the idea when Chow Winkler and Bud Barkley wandered into the office. Both were impressed when Tom explained the sketch. Chow stared at it, goggle-eyed at the thought of such a contraption coming to life. "'So that's the old think-box, eh?' he muttered. Tom laughed. "'Good name, Chow!' All three were startled as a voice suddenly broke in over the wall intercom. It was the operator on duty at the plant's communication center. "'Turn on your TV, Skipper,' the operator suggested. "'We've just had a news bulletin that an earthquake tremor has been felt over in Medfield.' There's a big plant there that makes rocket nose cones. A mobile TV crew's been rushed to the scene in a helicopter, and they're trying to pick up the action with a television camera. Good night! Another quake? Bud gasped. Tom had already rushed to the video phone. Flicking it on, he switched to a commercial channel. Soon a picture appeared on the screen. It was a panoramic shot of a landscape, evidently viewed from a hovering aircraft with a large industrial plant just below. A TV commentator's voice was reporting developments. "'Few visible signs of a tremor,' he said. "'As you can see, the rocket plant personnel and the people of Medfield are making desperate attempts to evacuate. Fortunately, most of them have already left the immediate area.' A few cars and trucks could still be seen speeding along the ribbon-like roads within view of the hovering television camera. Oh, oh, the commentator's voice broke in again. Notice that tall stack just over the plant. See how it's starting to tremble. It's beginning to crumble. This must be it. Suddenly the whole scene seemed to explode. Plant buildings collapsed like toy houses built of cards, while at the same time huge rocks and trees were uprooted as a yawning crack opened in the ground below. The three watchers in Tom's office stared in horrified dismay. But a moment later the picture on the TV screen became jerky and distorted, then faded out completely. After a brief interval a studio announcer came on. The relay transmitter must have been knocked out by the quake. We return you now to our regularly scheduled program, but we'll keep you informed as bulletins come in. Great balls of fire! Chow gulped as Tom turned off the set. "'I sure hope all those poor folks in cars got away safe.'
Tom rushed to a wall shelf and pulled out a book on geology. He leafed quickly to a section dealing with known earthquake faults and the distribution of quakes. When he looked up at the others, his face was grim. "'What's wrong, Skipper?' Bud asked tensely. "'That quake,' Tom replied, "'wasn't in a patterned zone any more than the Faber one was.' Chow's jaw dropped open in a comic look of dismay. "'You mean this here old earth we live on is getting all busted up and twisted around inside?' "'I wish I knew, Chow,' Tom paced worriedly about the office. "'It just seems queer to me that both of those quakes should have destroyed vital defense factories.' On a sudden impulse, Tom snatched up the telephone. His two companions listened as he put through a call to the FBI in Washington. Within moments, a friend at the Bureau, Wes Norris, came on the line. "'Look, Wes,' Tom said, "'is there any chance this quake that just happened at Medfield and the earlier one at Faber Electronics might have been caused by underground H-bomb blasts?' "'As a matter of fact, we're checking on that very possibility,' Norris replied. In other words, sabotage. Things are pretty hot around here since that news on Medfield came in, so I can't talk much right now, Tom. But I can tell you this, West concluded. We are investigating, and I do mean thoroughly. Bud and Chow were shocked when Tom reported his conversation with the FBI agent. Brand my rattlesnake stew, Chow exploded. Any ordinary varmint that'd cause an earthquake ought to be strung up like a horse thief. I agree, Chow, Tom said. But how do we find out for sure? After closing time at the plant, Bud drove home with Tom. Both Mrs. Swift and Sandy were upset as the boys discussed the situation. Tom, if this was deliberate, Mrs. Swift pointed out, Enterprises may be next on the enemy's list. Tom did his best to allay his mother's fears, but inwardly he himself felt apprehensive. Any large-scale sabotage plot would be almost certain to include Swift Enterprises, America's most daring and advanced research center. When his mother went upstairs to her room, Tom suggested to Bud that they drive out to the nearby state police post. Here he confided his fears to Captain Rock, an old friend of the Swifts. "'You have some request in mind?' Captain Rock inquired. "'How about making a search for any signs of suspicious digging or underground activity in the vicinity of Shopton?' Tom said. "'There would have to be an excavation of some sort in order to set off an underground blast.' Captain Rock mulled over Tom's suggestion. Sounds like a big job, but I'm afraid you're right, Tom. We can't risk a similar disaster here. We'd better move fast, too, Bud put in. Those two quakes so far came only a day apart. Rock picked up the telephone and barked out orders. Within half an hour, several carloads of troopers were covering the outlying roads that converged on Shopton. Firemen and Chief Slater's town police force were also pressed into action. They would search every cellar in town for signs of recent digging. Bud rode in one police car and Tom in another as a house-to-house -house search was conducted along the highway that ran past Enterprises. 
At one weather-beaten house, where Bud stopped with a state trooper, an old man came to the door. "'What you fellers prowlin' around for?' he asked. "'Bomb emergency,' the trooper said laconically. "'We have orders to search every house-cellar for underground openings.' Grumbling, the old man let them enter. He followed them down a rickety stairway. A moment later Bud stumbled and gave a yell. The trooper swung around, just in time to see Bud drop from view. End of Chapter 4 Next Episode Chapter 5 Secret Cache